The first reading today is uh, the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, and that's what I'm going to preach about. But before I do, this morning at 8, I heard the gospel again, and I thought I just might say a word about this because it's important um, in terms of how we interpret the parables. Whenever you read a parable of Jesus, there are three levels that you need to consider in terms of you interpreting that. The first one is, what did Jesus mean when he spoke the parable? The second one was, what does Matthew and his church mean when they reproduce the parable in their gospel that flowed out of the community's common life? And the third is, how do we make use of this, if at all, and what care should be taken in our processes of interpretation in our own day. When Jesus spoke this parable, he was meeting resistance from the religious leadership of his day. And his ministry was not a success. There were a number of reversals that had taken place, and he clearly knew that his teaching had now uh, come into conflict with the, the religious leadership. And so what he is saying is to them, because you haven't listened to what I've said, the responsibilities that have been given to you as the stewards of the covenantal relationship that we have with God is now going to be taken away from you and given to somebody else. And that my ministry has come to announce this. When Matthew took this parable, here's the situation on the ground. Matthew was a former rabbi. He is a leader in a Jewish Christian synagogue. We are at the moment, about 85 AD, when we begin to see the partings of the ways. The unbuckling of Judaism and Christianity now becoming separate. And in Matthew's Jewish Christian synagogue, it has become 80% Gentile. And so the conclusions that he is drawing with regard to this are that this message is for everybody. It isn't just for the people of the covenant. But also, some of his religious confreres are now in a situation where this message is being taken from them and preached to somebody else. The third level of interpretation is that we have seen parables like this certainly over the many, many centuries be misinterpreted in such a way that uh, Christians, a lot of Christians have been engaged in some bad behavior behind stuff like this. And we need to always take care and be good stewards of how we interpret these parables and make sure we're not going off the rails So it's an important thing, as my New Testament professor in seminary said, it isn't as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. So, the Ten Commandments. There's a great website, I don't know if any of you have ever seen it or gone to it, called religioustolerance.org. And they talk about all kinds of things, and they have a whole section on the Ten Commandments. And they open this section with a 
two quotations. Only 68 of 200 Anglican priests polled could name all Ten Commandments. But half said they believed in space aliens. <laughs> Concerning the Ten Commandments in courthouses and legislatures, you cannot post, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not lie in a building full of lawyers, judges, and politicians. It creates a hostile work environment. <laughs> and then at the end they say, we apologize to anyone who, who is offended. By either of the above quotations, we simply couldn't resist posting them, and I couldn't resist reading them to you. <laughs> so we'll talk a little bit about the origin of the Ten Commandments. This is kind of Ten Commandments 101 a little bit about how they have figured in the Christian faith and life and how do we use them if they're valuable to us even now uh, as some sort of a moral guide and uh, why do we ha have them all the time uh, come up in our liturgical life together. There are a number of views about the origin of the Ten Commandments. The tradition with a capital T says that they were written by Moses. In fact, the tradition with a capital T suggests that the whole of the Torah, the Pentateuch, was written by Moses. And over the last 150 or more years now, when we have been applying the tools of uh, critical biblical scholarship, uh, the suggestion is, and perhaps the reigning hypothesis, is that the Ten Commandments and all of the Pentateuch was written during the Babylonian captivity. In other words, here's the thing. Moses and the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness in 1450 B.C. And the Babylonian captivity occurs in 580 B.C. So we've got a, a gap. The interesting thing is that uh, Reginald Fuller, who is one of the great... Uh, Anglican biblical scholars of the 20th century, he died about three or four years ago, said that there has become a renewed interest and elevation once again of the uh, mosaic authorship. And so his view would be if we were to begin to accept this as coming and originating from Moses, then we need to know that he had borrowed from legal codes that were extant during the wandering in the wilderness and in which the people of Israel came in contact during their wanderings. So, for example, we possess legal codes by people like the Hittites. And we have these documents now through the processes of archaeology that would say, well, it looks like Moses may have used some of this material in order to write the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments are unique. They are not like the Code of the Hittites, while there are similarities. And so you have a situation where in the codes that are in the ancient Near East around the wanderings of the people of Israel, they will say, uh, if you do this, this is, are the con these are the consequences.
Moses says, thou shalt do this or thou shalt, thou shalt not do this. So the bumper sticker during one political campaign some a few years ago that said, the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions, is right. You know, it's sort of like the difference if you travel on a train in Italy and the sign in the railroad car said, says, it is unwise to lean your head out the window while the train is moving. If you go to Germany and you're in a train, the sign says it is forbidden to lean your head out the window while the train is moving. So the Ten Commandments are rather emphatic. Moses is giving the people of Israel some method by which in their community life together and in their own individual interior self-regulation, they are able now to function together and to understand some moral responsibility that they have as they seek to be faithful to God's purposes for them, both corporately and personally. And so Moses, if he is borrowing from some of these codes, is now interpreting them in light of his own monotheistic faith, and the necessity to enforce that view among the people who are now wandering in the wilderness. So it is important to know that if you're wandering and you get hooked up with a Hittite and you get married to them and they start saying, let's put up a little ash to Roth in the tent like my family used to do, the answer to that is no, you may not do that. Now, in Christianity, the Ten Commandments always need to be interpreted in light of the teaching of Jesus. And so the counterpoint to the Ten Commandments in our tradition with a capital T is the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching of the Savior. And we understand the value and utility of the Ten Commandments in light of him also emphasizing the law of love is the operative principle in all human interaction. In Anglicanism, the Ten Commandments have been important. And in fact, in the catechisms that are in the prayer book, the Ten Commandments are there and reproduced, and people are urged to learn the Ten Commandments. Some evangelical Protestants uh, believe that you don't, you're not under the Ten Commandments. You don't, you don't need to do that. But it has been a feature of most of Protestant Christianity that the Ten Commandments are important, and it has been also true for Roman Catholicism. If you go to a lot of English churches uh, in the country and you walk in, often you'll see in the chancel on either side the Ten Commandments posted. As you come in, you can look up and, and, and see them. When I was first an Episcopalian a long time ago, I went to Grace Cathedral and I heard a sermon that was uh, preached by a canon from St. Paul's Cathedral in London. His name was Freddie Hood. And he had one of those accents that's like somebody who had a public school education and copied the speech impediment of his tutor. 
not an uncommon occurrence in England, you know, Fweddy Hood. And he, in the sermon, he preached about doing a church, visiting churches in rural England, in some part of rural England. And he walked in to a church, and on either side of the chancel was not, in this case, the Ten Commandments, but the table of kindred and affinity, which in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is the uh, who you can marry and who you can't marry, right? So under the entry on one of the tablets that said, a man may not marry his grandmother. Some acolyte in the Ancient of Days penciled underneath it, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. <laughs> I mention this because in our liturgy, when we use the Ten Commandments, and we do a few times a year, the congregational response to the presider's speaking of the commandment is, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. In the Christian faith and life, the Ten Commandments have been used in catechesis and teaching since the time of Augustine, which is in the 4th century CE. So the late 300s and the early 400s, we begin to see it used on a regular basis. And they still have value, in my view, today. Ethical precepts, of course, always need to be interpreted in light of the situation on the ground, and that was what was true with the Ten Commandments then, and it is now. You know, uh, when I've preached on the story of Abraham and Isaac, I mentioned that this is a perfect example in the Hebrew Bible of how God transforms the creation through the manners, morals, and customs of people. We know from the archaeological evidence that in Canaanite religion, at the time of Abraham, it was customary to sacrifice your firstborn son. Human sacrifice was practiced by the Canaanites. And when Abraham refuses to do this and moves forward, we see around that time, the cessation of the practice. How do we know that? From the archaeological evidence and the dating of the burial sites where these sacrifices took place. And so, too, the Ten Commandments becomes then a means of understanding uh, the transformative character of our need always for self-regulation of instinctual drives in order to promote a healthy community, and to, in order to promote in our own interior, emotional, spiritual, and mental states a healthy balance. Now, it's true that in 2011, most of us aren't going to be confronting our spouse asking us if we could put an Ashtaroth up in the living room. But it strikes me that uh, the whole idea of, you know worshiping other gods hasn't left completely, has it? 
money, power, prestige. We the Silicon Valley, when I came down here, it was in the middle of the, you know, the, the real ascendancy of what was going on here. People were flying high in April. There seemed to be absolutely no credit given to serendipity as having some role in the way in which people become successful. And so there's always this reciprocal process uh, that takes place. Also, I mean, I've been a pastor for a while, and I have to tell you that murder, envy, lying, adultery uh, doesn't seem to have diminished. You know, it's hard to be rated. When I go to my colleague group, some of my colleagues, came, How, how's it been going this week? And they say, well, I can report at least for a change at St. So-and-so's sin is on the run. But not for long. So maybe it's important to see something about the value and utility uh, of these things. A commentary that I read about the Ten Commandments this week says that God has given us the Ten Commandments not to burden us with oppressive rules and laws in order to earn God's love, but as a sure way to demonstrate our gratefulness for the God who has already chosen loved and saved us. It is an affirmation of God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. And we give thanks for that. Amen.